I lost a friend, I lost a friend, I lost my mind Nobody believes me, say I know that he don't need me Cause he made a little too much money to be 20 and sad And I'll be fine without him, but all I do is write about him How the hell did I lose a friend I never had? Hey, this is Steve Balton, and you are here for my turning point, where our special guest today is a really freaking cool dude, Phineas. A lot of you know him from playing and producing with his sister, Billie Eilish, but he is a dope-ass artist in his own right and a super cool guy. And we are here today with him, as well as my new dog, Chaka, and this is a fun one. So sit back and listen to Phineas talk about being on the road with Billy songwriting, and many other things. So, you know, the premise is it's a normal interview show, yeah. but it starts with the question of a turning point moment for you. So for you, and it's funny, I'm sure this is an interesting question for you, because probably every fucking day at this point feels like a turning point. <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> but what would be the moment that you choose as a sort of turning point moment for you? Well, I mean, I, I appreciate you saying that because I think that would that's one of those things where I could give a lot of answers to because I think everything feels like a turning point right now. But I think maybe the maybe the turning point in my life kind of in the in the biggest way was was just giving ocean eyes to Billy. I think that was like the the real life turn. And it, and it was a very organic easy decision to make. She just was going to do the song better. I was like, I'd written the song that I wasn't even in my vocal range, really. And she has my favorite voice. And I was like, do you like this song? And she was like, I love that song. And I was like, do you want to sing it? She's like, yeah. you know. And that was like just the, the kind of moment that everything, everything really, there's been so many things that have changed since then, you know, which yeah. is great. But I think that was the, the thing that without that, nothing would have changed. You know what I mean? It had to like, that was like the starting point. It was the seed. And how old were you? I was 18. Okay. Yeah. It's so funny because I think it's 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 a very interesting thing because I think it takes a, a an impressive lack of ego to say, this isn't the right song for me and to give it to someone else. So it's interesting that you knew that at 18. Was there hesitation or was it just simply like an automatic, like, you know what? This just isn't the right song for me and Billy will fucking kill it. Well, I think... I, I don't I don't know if I can give myself as much credit as like having a lack of ego. I think I've still got plenty of an ego, but I think in my specific case, my ego is usually tied to the song, and I really want my songs to crush and do really well. And so I think whatever the the perfect you know outfit to put the song in is is what I'm the most excited about. And so I think I just was like, well, Billy's gonna. Billy's voice is going to make this song better, even if at the you know at the time we didn't know anything, we didn't know it was going to turn into anything. But I just knew that the recording would be a, would be better of the song than me singing it, you know. Mm-hmm. And that was just about the song, really. I was like, this is this is going to make my song better, <laughs> you know. That's interesting, though. So for you, it's funny as you go on. Then you know, talk about how you then. It's interesting because we were talking about John Mayer before we came on, and you know, I talk about this with artists all the time, right? How you choose, like the songs almost dictate to you. Sure. So, but now that you're releasing your own music, mm-hmm. how do you determine where a song goes? Because you're also writing with other people as well, That's right? Correct? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, for my my own music, I've I've almost exclusively written alone, and usually the songs that I keep are songs that are very personal and just 
just I'm the I'm the vehicle for them. And yeah, this is about the summer I had last year. So I, I'm gonna sing it. I'm gonna put it out. I'm gonna put it in clothes that I would wear. You know, and I think I think there's been a couple exceptions to that, but those are kind of tied to how I feel about my voice. Like there's a song on the EP that comes out in October called Shelter, and that song I wrote a couple years ago to send to Avicii. I heard Avicii was looking for some songs, and I thought, oh, I wonder if I could write a thing that Avicii would like. That would be a cool challenge. And um, I never heard back from that camp, but it was a fun assignment and challenge to write a song. But when I was writing it and then when I was recording the demo, I just loved singing it, and I loved... I loved the the way that I, that my voice sort of broke on the hook of that song, and so it became the song that I would like just sing at like sound checks and stuff. It became kind of important to me, um, and that was just sort of more like a performance thing because I think I think a lot of people could probably sing that song. It's not like about the the specific person I dated at like fifteen. It's just kind of a general song. But yeah, I think in general it's, it's songs that have a, a specific pertinence to me that I keep. It's interesting. I mean, when you look at it now, it's so funny how things work out. I mean, yeah. you know, is that a song that, I, I mean, I, I guess, you know, it's so weird to think about the fact that you wrote that song for him. And, he, you know, because I interviewed him a couple times. Yeah. You know. I loved I loved his work. I never met him, but I loved his work. You know, it's so interesting to think about, I mean, where your songs can go then. And, mm-hmm. and when you think about now, who those people are that you would want to, to cover your stuff. Or when you yeah. think about the fact of, you know, like, oh, okay. It could have worked out in such a different direction. Yeah. Do you feel like it was meant to be in a sense of like, okay, this is just now a song that's mine? Well, it definitely was like, you know, I think he would have done great stuff with it, and I would have been thrilled if he, you know, had had heard it and liked it, whatever. And you know, it's always one of those things where like I sent it to like an A and R that was working with him, so I don't, I don't even have proof that he ever heard it, right? I just never heard back. Um, but yeah, I do think sometimes it's it's funny when things don't like. Like basically that didn't work out and that not working out ended up being okay. You know, ended up like I ended up getting to perform the song and put it out and you know, I, I, I try to I try to t- talk about the fact that that it was the song that I wrote for Avicii because I think I think it's so tragic that he died and I think that like to me it's he was really important in, in production and in, you know, sort of pop music to me in my life and I like the idea of getting to go like this song that's coming out in you know late 2019 wouldn't exist without Avicii even though Avicii died you know what over a year ago now right I lose unfortunately all track of time I couldn't I know yeah. but terrible you know yeah. super tragic and he was so young whatever but I think his I think his art is going to last a really really long time and I think his influences oh know? no I agree with I that think the song is yeah. a really small part of of his inspiration, right? I was basically inspired by him. You know? mm-hmm. So it's interesting for you then, I mean, when you go back and hear the song, because I always think this is fascinating as well, because you say it's not about someone that you specifically dated when right. you were 15. Yeah. But what's interesting <laughs> as a writer is, right, you know, when you write, um, most good writing comes from the subconscious. That's true. And yeah. so then when you go back and look at stuff... You analyze it. Yeah, and you're kind of like, wait, I don't even know where the fuck... My favorite quote from an interview about this is uh, Brandon Boyd was telling me that it takes him two years to figure out what every Incubus album is about. <laughs> which makes sense. I mean, you know. I'm kind of just I'm kind of just now figuring out what the song When the Party's Over is about. So what's it about then? Well, when well, I... Wait, let me rephrase that because I actually don't sure. want to ruin it for what, fans. What do I think it's about? Yeah, or sure. what, what do you hear in it? Or what do you hear in it that surprises you? But it's funny because I, I hate, like for me as a, yeah. as a fan, 
I don't want to know the exact thing because you want to be able totally. to bring your own meaning to it. Yeah, it's one of the reasons I, you know, it's one of the reasons I don't like go like go on and on about like my songs when they come out. I just kind of go like, here's the song, check it out, let it mean something to you, you know. Especially because kids will get like a verse tattooed on their bicep, <laughs> and that's like <laughs> as soon as that happens, I'm like, the song is yours. Like you, you don't. My opinion of that song does not matter anymore. It's only, you. You own that song. You signed it. You know, it's the Louisiana purchase of that song belongs to you. But I think. I think to me, like when the party's over, was it's a a good example of that because it was a song that I wrote like in like thirty minutes at some point in 2017 on a piano, and it was it was very subconscious. It was just like okay, those are the lyrics and the melody, and they rhyme, and it's done, you know. And I I was I was pleased, you know, of the song, but I think it it's meant so many different things to so many different people, and I think. The longer I'm alive, the more it means to me specifically, and the more I can sort of imbue it with meaning. I remember Billy, you know, not to put her on blast, I think she went through an experience this year. She came to me and she goes, I finally really relate to when the party's over. She was like, I always liked it, but now I relate to it. And I was like, oh, well, that's really cool, you know? So it's interesting for you then. <clears throat> in the new meaning, yeah. Like when you go back and are there things that surprise you that came out of it, or things that surprise you when you look at like okay, you know. And I've talked about this with so many writers and about the fact that you know writing can also be, in addition to being subconscious, it can be kind of prophetic. And I think the reason is is you're writing about Nick Cave put it best. He's like you're writing about the things that you're longing for. He's like when mm-hmm. I'm happy, I write sad songs. When I'm you know sad, sad I'm stuff. writing about happy stuff because that's, really that's what that's what I want in my life. That's really interesting. Yeah, I, yeah. Nick Cave's a smart guy, man. Oh, he's the best. Yeah, he's so, so good. Fucking good live too. Yeah, and just great hair. Yeah, <laughs> hope I'm, I'm hoping I'm holding on to my hair at that age. I'd be <laughs> super stoked. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think there's just like little things like that, sort of scattered throughout everything. In in when the party's over, just specifically, there's this line: "Tore my shirt to stop you bleeding, but nothing ever stops you leaving." And I think that line to me, at the time, was like a good image. It's like making someone a tourniquet and then it's like well you can't you can't stop them like you know going away from you or whatever but i think i think as life has worn on on that song it's like it means really different things to me and you know it means like listening to other people's problems and diatribes and trying to be there for them and help them and and i think it's it's actually a line about kind of giving part of yourself away to somebody that might not have the capacity to give themselves back to you you know i think and I, I don't. There's no onus or blame of that, but I think it's like sometimes you, you want to just absorb somebody's whole kind of struggle and strife and trauma, and they're obviously like, if you went through something, they would still be going through their shit, so they they wouldn't be there to like take that from you. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's what that line has meant to me as as time has you know gone on. Well, it's interesting because you say that you know that that uh, Sandy Hook PSA just came out this week. I don't know oh if you saw. Oh my god! And that it's was like you the talk most... you talk about the tourniquet, and it's funny because now it takes on a whole new freaking meaning. I think about like as soon as you say that, I, that image pops into my head of the that, socks. Yeah, oh, that video. That that's like a. I'm so glad they made that video. I yeah. feel like you know, it's so it's so not funny, and uh, I think sometimes the way you show how not funny something is. Is to to put a little like super dark humor in it of like their their faces in that in that video. It's like here's how you you make a tourniquet out of socks, right? Like yeah. that's the whole kind of pitch. And I what? think those are that's the way you you hammer home to people 
how fucking serious something is sometimes. Well, I was going to say, I think what happened, why I like that ad so much is because I, I do think a lot of people just want to look away. Yeah, exactly. They, really, they just don't want to see, and that's so much of what's happening, but this is a whole separate conversation. I, I want to go back to you for a second. Now, what lyrics would you get tattooed on your bicep? None. I agree with you on that, but if you were going to get any, what would be the one that you would just be like, all right, you know? Uh, well, not to, 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 to not be a difficult answer, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, really, I really mean none. I, I don't think I I think tattoos look beautiful on people, but in my life I've I have no thought that has lasted me long enough that I would want it on me forever. That being said, that, that's there's fair. a line in Bonnie Vare's song Thirty Three God, which is an awesome song off an album that's really influenced my production and writing, and it's a uh, it's a it's a really kind of like under the radar line in the song. The line is just a child ignored. These will just be places to me now. And I think I think these will just be places to me now is like was such a like like just hit me over the head when I heard it of like I'd never really heard it put that way, but that's how all of life kind of feels. You you have a significant experience and then for some reason that significant experience is kind of undone. And then it, it's just a, a a place or a street or a park or a car. Well, it's such a fascinating thought because, and and it is a great line. The National will do that for me sometimes. They'll hit me. Yeah, they're great. Yeah, but it is because I'm sure that you know it's something that you've had to digest a lot in the last couple years because, you know, it it just everything happens at such a whirlwind pace. Yep. It's not like you know you can't sit there and digest it all and appreciate it and Mm -hmm. take it all in. And I'm sure it's fascinating though to write it and look back on it. It's funny, like in um, I suck with titles by the way, but um, because I listen to everything all the way through. But like in I lost a friend, I just love that line where you talk about the fact that you know people say oh well you know you can't be that sad because you're 20 and you made so much money (laughs) but it's like dude it doesn't i mean maybe it's because i've known so many musicians who unfortunately like tim were so fucking miserable (laughs) but it's like it's it's a very real side effect of of all of that so i like the fact that it's you know it's just kind of calling it out there well that line that was like one of those lines i i usually like write a line and i think for whatever reason well i can't say that (laughs) And then I think, well, I should probably say that. And I think that that line is a great example of that because I think it it's always felt gauche to me to talk about money. And I think in in so many you know uh, ways, it's so immaterial to to the human experience, the human condition. And so I try not to like labor over it. But in that specific case, I did think it was it was interesting to comment on the kind of like that it that it looks. It looks superficial to a lot of people to be kind of moping around if you're in a situation that is enviable, and I'm aware of that. Like I know that I'm I'm in a place that's like really great, and I feel really fortunate to be here, and I really count my lucky stars often, and so I didn't want to like ignore that. But it is a funny thing because you do kind of have this feeling of of like your emotions being illegitimate because of extenuating circumstance. So yeah, I think it was this, you know. This feeling of like, how do I articulate that? Like, I feel really sad and depressed in this moment in this song, and that I understand that nobody gets that because they're like, what the fuck does he have to be sad about? You know, <laughs> everything's going great. Yeah, it's funny. I remember talking with Slash about it, and he was saying that you know, it, it's hard as a musician because 
you know, people do think that you have such this, you know, glamorous life. Right. You're almost not allowed to be human. And basically it's like people feel like, oh, exactly what you're talking about. Like, what do you have to bitch about? So I'm really curious then, as you, you know, deal with success and, and have all these things, and yeah. obviously you do a lot of festivals, you get to be around musicians. That's Are cool. there people that you've learned from or that you talk to about this and sort of, you know, because again, I think a lot of people struggle with that thing of like, again, Slash was saying, dude, it's like, you know, he was in the middle of a divorce, but it's like, right. you're the fucking guitarist for Guns N' Roses. What do you, you know, so you got to, you know, people will be like, oh, you got divorced, but everybody else will fuck you. Who cares? You know, and it's like, you're still allowed to be human and have feelings. Yeah, I mean, that's, I like that you bring up the festival thing. We, Billy and I enjoy festivals more and more and more. And we all, we enjoyed them at the beginning, but they were kind of intimidating because we really didn't know anybody. So we'd go in and they'd be like, favorite artists of ours walking around like the catering area and we're like oh my god it's Anderson Pack <laughs> and now we've met a lot of them at least once and so we get to go like hey how are you and and the more that happens and the more i get to meet new people the more it feels like a summer camp or something where you're all kind of dealing with the same hot day in Atlanta and the same terrible corn on the cob at catering <laughs> and like the same incredible crowds and the same incredible show and that's just a really fun situation to find yourself in. And that all being said, I think predominantly we're not all getting together and complaining about how terrible our you know, lives are. We're mostly just like, how sick is this? Get to play to like 90,000 people. It's crazy. Um, but it is kind of, you know, I think you look for people with commonality. And I think, I think it's because you feel that you go through this very isolating experience. And when you find other people that are going through a similarly isolating experience, you no longer feel isolated. And I think that's kind of broad spectrum what like human relationships are is is feeling seen and feeling heard, you know. And I think that's a lot of like what being a you know, a musician going through like a moment like Billy or I are, you know kind of does to you is you find other people who are going it was like why we became really close with Khalid when we did you mm -hmm. know we were like Billy and Khalid were like s similar ages and going through a very similar moment in their lives and in like sort of the zeitgeist and it was you know kind of crazy and you kind of find like a person that gets it you know and I think that's like the other part of it is like it's great to find someone that's that's not overly impressed. You know, someone who's like down to like go back to talking about like, you know, whatever show they saw on Netflix that day. That isn't like, so what's it like? You know, yeah. because I think inevitably you get kind of bored of talking about yourself that way. You know, or you or you don't know, or you. I I often feel like I'm bragging. I think that's like the thing that makes me feel the most self conscious is when like I'll see like a family friend for the first time in a couple of years and they'll have all these questions and you realize that you've like talked about yourself for an hour you know and I'm always trying not to I'm always trying to like every time I answer a question I'm like so let me tell me about like what it's like being in your college door you know any anything that's like the, the person that is my same age grew up with me I'm like you know how's your roommate how's that all been how's are you leading you know campus tours for the freshmen like what do you do you know so it's tricky yeah so what was the net last Netflix show you were watching? I was watching a couple episodes of that show, the, the Mind Explained, last night. And we watched, it's like a Vox production, you know, that like website, Vox. Yeah, I've heard of it, but yeah. Yeah, but they, they've done this really interesting series called The Mind Explained, and each episode is like 20 minutes, and they talk about a different sort of broad topic of of uh, the human brain. I, I was going to say, how do you explain the brain in 20 minutes? Oh, 100%. <laughs> they, they basically explain like the most broad term of like 
like last night I watched like an episode on mindfulness and an episode on anxiety. And the mindfulness episode was really cool because there are a lot of people, especially a lot of monks that have really devoted their whole lives to mindfulness and to being present and to letting go of, you know, all sort of external, you know, ephemeral nonsense. And, uh, and that was a really interesting episode to learn about that. The anxiety episode I found a little hilarious because <laughs> by the end of the episode, I felt like I knew less about anxiety. <laughs> I was like, everyone, anxiety is such an incredibly complex topic and everybody has a different form of anxiety that's formed as a reaction to their sort of life stimulus that, you know, so complex. So it was really interesting to watch 22 minutes of it, but I then came out of the episode like, well, I don't, I know even less about, about anxiety. <laughs> so it's funny, do you feel like now that you could, after watching the show, you could practice mindfulness, you could do the, the sort of the monk letting go thing? I definitely I would love to get better at that. I think on my, on my happiest days, I'm, I'm involved in that. On my, like the, the day that I'm, I feel the best about myself, I'm the most present. But uh, yeah, I definitely, like I watched an interview with Machine Gun Kelly a, a little while ago, mm-hmm. and he was talking about like, it's a funny kind of convoluted interview. It's one of, the, one of those GQ 10, 10 Essentials videos okay. on YouTube. Yeah. And he, he has a straight razor, mm-hmm. and he's like, yeah, I shaved my face with a straight razor. And I was like, huh. And his explanation for it, which I loved, was he was like, I can't meditate yet, I'm not there in life. But if I can spend a longer amount of time doing a simple task, that's like a form of meditation for me. And it was funny because I've sat down to try to meditate on every flight that I've ever been on, and I try to meditate like once a day. I, I'm still spending the whole time just racing through my brain. You know what I mean? Even <laughs> yeah. though I'm constantly trying to refocus and recenter, it's just a constant like barrage of things. So I liked that he was like, I'm not there in my life yet. Because I was like, yeah, that's kind of how I feel. Like I'm just not there. <laughs> this is a really fascinating question. Though. I never thought about this, but it's interesting. As a writer, though, with the mindfulness... Part of your your ability as a writer or your success as a writer is being empathetic and being able to relate to other people. So I think in a sense, does it hinder the writing if you can let go too much? Huh. That's it, really interesting. And I, I had never thought about it, but I mean, again, it's like, because it's funny, like I was listening to Springsteen Radio on the way over here on Sirius. Yeah. And it's like, you listen to old songs like, you know, New York City Serenade, mm. which are so story-based. Yeah. And, you know, Tom Waits is still my favorite writer of all time. Oh, the best. Yeah. And it's like, again, those stories, and it's like, but if you can't place yourself in the mind of those people, can you, you know, and again, I never thought about this, and I don't know the answer, I'm just thinking about it out loud. Yeah, it's really interesting. I do think that like probably the the most important human sort of emotion or emotional connection is is empathy by by miles. I think like ability to empathize with others basically prevents like all evil because you're you're acting out of a kind of an altruistic sense of like how your actions are going to impact others and how your actions can help others and I think, you know, the more empathetic the world becomes the more positive a place it is. I think I think that was like like my mother's a very optimistic person and I think she hopes that's what the internet is doing is is broad empathy. Unfortunately, I think it's the opposite in a lot of respects. Yeah, I'm I'm more cynical than my mom and I don't agree. I don't (laughs) I don't think the internet is a deep well of empathy. I think the internet is a deep well of of antipathy or whatever the word would be. The opposite. Yeah. I think it's mostly envy. 
I think yeah. it's mostly sort of like a dick measuring contest of people. Oh, and that's unfortunate. Is that the problem is is that it, it that only progresses, and the issue is is that you know social media creates that where you 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 want to incite envy in other people. Yeah, you're trying. Yeah, that's that's a hundred percent true. You're like, how can I make people jealous of me in some way, which is kind of crazy. And it's funny, I, like I I really love a lot of what social media allows me to do, and I think that to me. Empathy and envy aside, I try to use social media for humor, for my own benefit. I think like I I go on my Twitter and like find stuff that makes me laugh, and I share it, and I send it to my girlfriend, and I send it to my sister, and when they do the same to me, it's like it's 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 positive, you know. Um, but I think I think it's really. I, this was this. I'm quoting directly this this Vox show that I watched last night. Mind explained, but someone was talking about social media, and he was like, "Yeah, it feels like we created the car, and we just haven't made the seatbelt yet." Hmm. Like yeah. ag- again, you know. And I was like, "Oh, that's a really good explanation. Like, it's a tool. It's helpful. It's efficient. It's the future, and we don't have the safety regulations for it yet. You know, and yeah. those are going to be really tricky to find. I think. Well, because the problem is the car is already speeding out of control. So you're trying to put the seatbelt in while the car is already going towards the ocean. It's only fun to drive the car really fast. Yeah. Yeah. It's just full speed. Well, it's such a fascinating thing because, I mean, I talk about this with people all the time as well. And it's really, you know, when you talk about it with older artists, you know, they've had to adjust to social media. Yep. But, like, you grew up on that shit. We did grow up on that shit. You know, so it's, it's like you feel like you have maybe have, I don't know, a better understanding. Or maybe you understand then better how awful it can be. There's some, there's some quote that I don't know who to attribute it to, but it's about technology within the span of time since you've been born not being technology. If it was introduced within like the first three or five years of your birth, you're born with it basically, and it isn't like tech. It's just sort of life. I noticed that with Billy a lot because she's only four years younger than me, and like I remember being like 14 when she was like 10. And she and her like couple friends had like Snapchat and they were like using the app in the most like efficient way, just like so fast. It was like watching like a it was like watching like a James Bond movie where they're using a computer that doesn't exist and they're just like pop, 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 just like popping through everything. And it was so foreign to me because I just was like trying to figure it out. And she wasn't trying to figure it out. She just like knew how to how to do it. It's kind of crazy, you know. Well, this is a really interesting conversation, but it's funny for you, I think. I think, you know, when I go back to the first Billy show I saw at the Fonda... Thanks for coming, by the way. That was a really fun show. That was a fucking great show. Thanks, But it was interesting. It was really exciting to watch the crowd. Yep. Because there's a certain level of humanity that is going out of a lot of younger people because of the technology. So when I see them singing along and connecting in a moment, it was actually really inspiring. Agreed. So for you, talk about that then as a writer, seeing these people sing these words back to you and and to like have them listen. And, you know, when you sing the slower songs, you know, when you do them. And have them pay attention. It's crazy. It's really crazy. When I, it's a really funny thing. I, when we're do, when I'm doing a show with Billy, I, I realize often that the audience is like much more emotionally present than I am. I'm physically present and maybe mentally present, but I think emotionally, I when I'm doing a show with Billy, I kind of have to take a back seat because I have to like not fuck up. Like I have to play like the piano part and get it right. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm sort of keeping my actual emotional response to the whole thing at bay 
as like a self-preservation method. But especially if it's a song that I'm comfortable with and I'm fluid with and I know how to play it, I can look out in the crowd and I see these kids like crying and holding each other and filming it and screaming the lyrics and it's it's very moving to me because I I see them essentially translating the song from from one language into theirs and that's it's a big deal to me. So for you, do you remember that show that you saw as a kid that that you had that same response? Yeah. Yeah, I, there's a band called Against Me that I love that's fronted by Laura Jane Grace. Yeah. Formerly Thomas Gable. And I I only sort of really came onto the band post transition, so it was a I was I guess that was the Transgender Dysphoria Blues. I think that was the name of the album. But it has a song called Black Me Out on it. And the chorus is uh, Black Me Out, I want to piss on the walls of your house. I want to chop those brass rings off your fat fucking fingers as if you were a kingmaker. And I was like 15 at the time. <laughs> and I don't think I'd ever like wanted to piss on the walls of anybody's house at the time. And I was like, whoa, that's, they really like, they're really angry. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and in the year from hearing that song to seeing that band live at FYF downtown, I got really angry and I totally related to it. <laughs> I remember standing in the crowd and being like, I want to fucking piss on the walls of your house. <laughs> like just so being, whose house did you want to piss on the walls of? I can't tell you that on this <laughs> podcast. That would, that would be a problem. But somebody, for sure. But you can at least, you know. Have, I can fully have, identify. Have there been it. multiple people since then, or it's still only one person whose you know, walls you want to piss on? It's a pretty small number, but okay. a couple people. I mean, I would imagine being in the music industry, too, it grows more, but that's a whole other conversation. A couple people. <laughs> So what's the actual release date for the EP, by the way? I'm terrible with dates. October 4th. You know, it's funny. I mentioned Springsteen earlier, and, yeah. and going back to this for a second. It's a really... I've talked to a couple of members. Come here, Chuck. Good boy. Come on, Chuck. He's so pretty, Chuck. He's such a good boy. Oh, he's just so like... Cute. He's so chill, too. Yeah. So for those who aren't watching, my my new dog is here in the podcast with us. He's and he's got up and walking around. But... Um, it reminds me of our dog, because our dog has arthritis. He has arthritis. Yeah. He's yeah. A, yeah. So they're a little limpy. Exactly. A little gimpy, yeah. yeah but very cute. sweet, and yeah. So, but it's why I've talked to a couple members of the E Street Band over the years about this sort of situation of, of you know, playing stadiums with Springsteen. Yeah. And then they go off and do their own thing where they play <laughs> the clubs. And they talk about it as being the best of both worlds. Do you feel like you're in that situation now where it's like, because basically you get the intimacy right. of releasing an EP yeah. on your own. Yeah. And then this weekend you're doing fucking iHeart. Right. And you're doing Life is Beautiful, both of which are excellent festivals, by the way. It's, I'm excited for both. We've never done either. Um, it's totally the best of both worlds. The thing that I'm having to wrestle with is that there's a lot, we've, We've gotten to a place. We did kind of each stage with Billy. We did really small places. We played the Echo in LA. We played Baby's All Right in Brooklyn. And then the next tour, we played the El Rey in LA. We played um, Bowery in New York. And then we played the Fonda in LA. We played Irving in New York. And then the last one, we did Radio City in New York. And we played the Greek in LA, which has been a, a really rapid rise and really steady. And with each, with each rung that we've ascended, we get a bigger crew. We get a better crew. We get you know, more uh, people working with us and our tour experience gets better and the, sh and the show that we are trying to put on as a result gets better because we have pros helping us put the show on. So I'm, I'm going back to playing a, a much smaller, you know, thousands and thousands of people less than where Billy and I are playing right now. And the thing that I'm 
not interested in losing is the really professional bunch of people that we get to tour with because they've made our show better. It's like you don't want to go back to putting on a show you're less proud of because it's a smaller place. So, that all being said, I'm losing a bunch of money on the, <laughs> on the tour. <laughs> and I think that's fine because I really, I'm not doing this tour to make a bunch of money. I'm doing it because it's really important to me. And I want every person that comes to the show to be seeing a show that I'm really proud of. You know, and I think I think one of the things that being in uh, you know the touring experience of Billy means is that I can afford to lose a little money because I'm I'm making money elsewhere. But I do empathize with like anyone that is own is is playing their biggest show at the venue I'm playing at because like I played the the Troubadour in January and a couple people afterward came up and they were like that was the best show I've ever seen at the Troubadour. And I was like, well, yeah, I lost like $5,000. And, <laughs> and I think like that was okay to me. And, and I, I put on this show that I was so proud of, but I had, I had $5,000 to lose, you know? And I think like I didn't have $5,000 to lose like two years ago. And my band was like terrible. <laughs> you know? And so I think like, I think it's a tricky, I think expectations are basically super high now for stuff. And but that's uh, internal expectations or external expectations. And by the way, if it makes you feel any better, I remember interviewing George Michael on the last American tour he did. And same thing, he lost a shit ton of money on it. But because that's what I mean. Because George he, Michael lost a bunch of money on his last tour. Like, it's, like, because I, he had to do state, and it was a fucking great show. It was a great show, and so he yeah. had to lose money. And I think that's like, like Timberlake, I think, lost a bunch of money on the 2020 tour, which is crazy because he's Timberlake. And George Michael losing money is crazy. I think you get to this place where you're like tr- just trying to give every person in the room their money's worth. And maybe their money's worth is like more money than everyone spending combined is, you know? And I think it is tricky. But that all being said, if, you know, if you're sort of looking at every area of revenue and every area of expense, you know, hopefully it balances out. You know, right now, like my streaming makes enough money that I can afford to lose money touring, et cetera. But, it's interesting. We definitely think about it a lot, you know. So for you though, when people come to the solo shows, then what do you want them to take from it? What would be the thing that that you know is the best thing that that you can hear besides is the best show I've ever seen at the Troubadour? And I've seen a lot of fucking great shows at the Troubadour. <laughs> well, I know, and I, I, there's, you know, I don't think I'm not pretending that I'm the best act to play the Troubadour. I just probably was the idiot that spent the most money at the Troubadour, <laughs> had the most lights and fog. I don't know about that, man, because I saw Nine Inch Nails at the Troubadour once. They probably spent a lot. They probably did spend a lot Trent, of money. Yeah. yeah, Trent wants to put on a, a hell of a show, yeah. which is good. That's why he's where he is. I um, mean, I also saw James Taylor and Carol King at the Troubadour, which was incredible, but you know, they don't Carole really... Carol King is the goat. But She's they, do, so they don't good. have to spend a lot of money because, I mean, you They're know... They're just them. Yeah, yeah. You know. Totally. Uh, I think my my hope for takeaway from, from a show of mine would be that they were really glad they'd been there. I think that's the shows that have meant the most to me in my life, I'm just so glad I was there for them. Like, oh my God, so glad I was there. You know, I think that's that to me is the the definition of like a true live experience is something that you're really glad not to have missed out on. And then like when you go to try to explain it to your friend who wasn't there, you're like, oh my God, the Arctic Monkeys played Why'd You Only Call Me When You're High? And they, <laughs> they started it in this totally different way. And then he like did this crazy thing with his mic stand. It was crazy. Oh, I wish you were there. I'm so <laughs> glad I was there. That's like the kind of experience that t- that I always walk away with. 
Uh, last question, but you know, since last you say, question, since you say Carol King is the goat, yes. what's the Carol King song you wish you had written and why? All of them, yeah, <laughs> all of them. Honestly, um, I don't know. I just I feel like all of her songs to me are like these. They're all full of each individual line that I wish I'd written. Will you still love me tomorrow? It's like super bummed not to have. Uh, come up with that one but they're all just amazing her her body of work is like so incredible and then i i'm you know young enough and ignorant enough that like a lot of her catalog that isn't attributed to her i didn't really even know about until i saw uh the carol king musical right and you learn about all of the songs she was writing for other artists and other acts and that's unbelievable you know that's just like a further demonstration of how gifted a composer and writer she is you know because her catalog if you take away all of that stuff and only judge her by songs attributed to carol king she's she's one of the greats but i think you add that with like songs that she was giving away unbelievable yeah well it's interesting uh, so we'll make this last question then and, and i lied on the last one but it's funny because no i think it's what you know as a writer right i talk about those people all the time or as an artist of any kind you can never do your best work because the reality is that you always have to have something to shoot for but what does happen that. what happens is you have things that you are where you find yourself getting closer to where it is you want to be and you see the progression yeah. so when you look at this ep what are the moments that you think like already you're like okay this is who i want to be yeah phineas in 2020 phineas sure. 2021 sure are there moments that really stand out to you where you feel like these are the building blocks of yep. who you yeah 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 there's a song on the ep called um Dialone that to me represents a lot of like what I was aiming for, and I'm really grateful to have gotten there. And um, there's a song that I put out much earlier in the year called "I Lost a Friend" that um, I I included on this because to me it's still it's still a song that I'd be proud to have written in the future. Um, and I think I think the things about those two that unite them and that I'm proud of is that they're they're unadorned. Emotionally, I think they're just they're just about what they're trying to be about, and I don't I don't when I listen back to them, I don't think I was like overcome with a desire to be clever or to be sophisticated. And I think sometimes when you try to be those things, you just end up being pretentious. Yeah. And one of the songs on this EP has name drops F. Scott Fitzgerald, and if that's not <laughs> the best example of trying to be clever and ending up. <laughs> pretentious I don't know what is but that song's catchy so I'll bring it out anyway <laughs> well you know what you could look at it from the perspective of maybe you'll educate some people on F. Scott Fitzgerald so there is that and hopefully by the way from listening to this podcast people will then go out and fucking check out Carol King yeah I think she's got a bright future <laughs> <laughs> Dude, you know what? There was a story of these things I was seeing on social media, though. And this happened when fucking Kanye worked with Paul McCartney, too. But, you know, Post Malone just put out a record with Ozzy. Everyone's like, everyone's like I don't know who this Ozzy is, but Post put him on the map. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> fuck you, you know? <laughs> so there's a lot of people. We may know that Carol King has a bright future. There's a lot of people who still need to be educated, you well, know? Well, I count myself among them when I saw the musical several years ago. Because I was like, I know, I know her songs. I'd been on Glee. We'd sung some of her songs. But, like... Yeah, her just her artistry and her catalog. I was like, whoa, this is great. That's like the best part about things like a musical being made, a biopic. Yeah. Think about how many people know more this year about Freddie Mercury than they did last year. 
and more this year about Elton John than they did last year. That's what's cool about a biopic. So cool in 50 years, who's going to play you in the biopic? Oh my God. <laughs> He's definitely not been born <laughs> if it's 50 years from now. Okay, 20 years from now, 10 years from now. Um, I want Jacob Tremblay to play me. That kid is <laughs> unbelievable. He would play me, and you'd be like, wow, Phineas was never that likable. <laughs> <laughs> that kid is astoundingly positive and likable. <laughs> I know Phineas. Kid's not playing him well. <laughs> and on that note, yeah, cool. Anything thanks you want to add? Me, no, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I love this show. I'm honored to be on it. Oh, dude, this was so fun. I knew this would be a fucking blast. You know, and you got to be the very first person with Chaka here. Well, that's the that's yeah. the real you know, yeah. creme de la creme. It is, you know. Yeah. Gotta be the first artist to meet him. It's the best. Cool. All right, thanks, dude. Thanks, man. Hey, this has been Steve Balton with my turning point. What a pleasure to have Phineas on here. I really love this dude. Such a cool guy. And hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Thanks. Give me, give me shelter from the store. Give me, give me shelter. Keep me warm. Come kiss me by the delta with a river store. But I'll be warm as long as I'm yours. In New Hampshire, all roads lead to adventure. The Granite State isn't only home to New England's tallest peaks. You'll also find epic coastal views and charming towns perfect to explore on a summer trip. Whether you're seeking the adrenaline rush that comes from kayaking rapids or the peaceful chill that comes from enjoying a cocktail on the porch of a classic B&B, there's something for everyone in New Hampshire. For more summer inspiration, go to visitnh.gov. That's visitnh.gov. Discover your new. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.